The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today, we are revisiting the Michael and Mary Kay Holloman Oral History Collection here at the museum to dive deep, deep underwater. What is an aviation museum doing under the sea, you might ask? Well, this episode is an excerpt of the oral history of Vince Capone, a deep-sea diver who has worked with NASA and other space-related groups to track down pieces from Apollo and space shuttle missions. In this conversation with the museum's adjunct curator for space history, Jeff Nunn, Capone recounts the tale of searching for the Saturn V F-1 rocket engines from the Apollo missions off the coast of Florida at the request of billionaire Jeff Bezos. How exactly do you find a needle in a sand stack at the bottom of the ocean? The first thing we had to do was determine what is the basic search area. So we sifted through all the NASA data, and NASA did not track the first stage down to its impact on the water. So that first stage separates at about 40 miles up, and it keeps going up to over 60 miles, and then it falls back to the ocean. Well, they had estimated the impact sites. So we had to take those estimates and develop a search area around the estimates. And the total search area turned out to be about 180 square miles, which is fairly large. Mr. Bezos, Jeff Bezos, had one goal in mind. He wanted to recover the F-1 engines from Apollo 11. The challenge was there were eight other Apollo first stage missions in the same general area. How do you figure out where Apollo 11 was? So phase one was to determine the search parameters. We completed that. Phase two was to execute the search. That search needed deep water side scan sonar. Side scan sonar creates an acoustic image of the seafloor with enough resolution to be able to pick out the debris. Now those sonars are only available through a few different companies. One was a synthetic aperture sonar which was yet untested but had fantastic resolution. The synthetic aperture sonar was really cutting edge and it had never been used on a project up to this point. So the first thing that we did was we tested off of the coast of California. And the reason we wanted the synthetic aperture sonar is at a range of 1,200 meters, which is very long for a sonar, it had 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter resolution, and we were able to locate a World War II aircraft and its propeller lying separate on the bottom at a 1200 meter range. 
That is just phenomenal resolution. So the synthetic aperture sonar has this incredible resolution that doesn't degrade with range. Standard side scan sonars, as you push out in range, the resolution decreases. After testing the synthetic aperture sonar, we felt that it was ready for a commercial operation and that was our primary search tool. However, like anything else, if you're going to do a large operation, you want to have the ability, if something goes wrong, to have a backup in place. Capone rule of three, always have three ways to accomplish any major part of a marine operation. So we had a backup sonar um, in case something went wrong. The Ocean Stallworth was an old uh, Tagos class Navy ship that was, being, was converted to a scientific oceanographic vessel. So she was designed to do operations like this. It was, it was a good ship for the operation. So, but she needed some work before she could actually go out on this trip. There were specific upgrades. So we were the first oceanographic operation for the ship. So there was a, a rebuilding of the deck, the installation of a big A-frame. So the cable, that five-mile cable, goes from a huge winch out over a shiv that's supported by an A-frame over the stern. And that A-frame had to be built and fabricated and added to the ship. So all these modifications were being done to the ship before we could go out. A typical search operation, like the one for F1, you have a team that is collecting the data, and their job is to make sure that you collect high-quality data and cover the area that you need to cover. That data, once it's recorded, is then passed on to a sonar analyst who sits and then reviews that data. And basically, whether you're the collection team or the analyst, you're looking at sonar pictures of the bottom that are really no different than satellite imagery. On that imagery, you would see bottom features, and there were, were swales in this area or big furrows. And when we ran across debris, you would see patches of reflective material. And then we can measure those patches of material to get an approximate size. But it's, it was not the resolution where we could say that's definitely 1.2 meters long uh, because of the, the resolution of the older system was m better suited to detecting the debris fields, but identification was more difficult. These F1 engines generate 1.5 million pounds of thrust each. They lift a 3,000 ton spacecraft, the Saturn V spacecraft, to supersonic speed in about a minute. So that first stage when it separates is 40 miles high it keeps going to over 60 miles high and then falls back to the sea surface. And that transition from 60 miles high down to the sea surface, 
that first stage is tumbling and coming apart. We didn't fully understand how much it was coming apart until we saw the debris field. And there was very little of large structure left. The engines had all separated from the thrust plate and were scattered. There was one or two large pieces of the first stage in one or two locations and we did film some of that, but that wasn't our, our primary goal. It was the, the engines. But they were broken up and scattered uh, into these clusters of, of debris. And that cluster of debris turned out to be the engine, the heat exchanger, the turbine, and associated pieces in sort of the pile. So it looks like those engines broke off, hit, and then you know, were scattered as they fell to the, the bottom. What we ended up with was this map of debris fields. It was a huge debris field of nine Saturn first stages. And within that debris field, there were clusters of larger pieces. And so we took those clusters and analyze those clusters for their relationship to the associated first stage impact sites. And what we found was the downrange position didn't correlate very well at all. Hmm. But the across range or across track error was much smaller. So we thought, hmm, different Apollo missions have slightly different azimuths. And by using the azimuth of the mission, we started to track where those azimuths crossed these bigger debris fields. We also were able to identify the debris field of Apollo 12 because Apollo 12 uh, burned longer than it should have and its debris field was way downrange further than anything else. And so we said, okay, this is where NASA predicted it would land. This is where it ended up. And we know this is 12 because it's so far away from all this other debris. Now we take that overshoot distance and then come back to other NASA predictions and use the azimuth and the offset distance to come up with the highest probability locations for Apollo 11. And that's how we developed the recovery strategy from the sonar data. These engines had fallen through three miles of water and had impaled themselves in the bottom for most cases. To be able to even see a serial number, what we were hoping to do was go to these debris fields, look at the serial number, make a determination of whether we were, you know, our theory was plausible, and then only excavate Apollo 11. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos was very clear, he wanted Apollo 11. When that wasn't feasible, we decided to do a recovery from the highest probability area. 
And the first engine we pulled up from that area was identified as being from Apollo 12. But we also knew Apollo 12 was supposed to be way out here. And once we were down identifying debris, we realized that these first stages broke up midair. So that the debris could be a little widely, more widely scattered than we expected. And the first recovery made from the highest probability area was from Apollo 12, which sort of provided a conundrum to us because it shouldn't have been Apollo 12. And from there, we went to other locations and tried to identify engines and did other recoveries, but came back to that area. And that's the area that we also recovered an Apollo 11 engine from. So were we correct? Was, was that first engine we recovered really on Apollo 11? That's a mystery. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. You can see one of the recovered F-1 engines from Capone's expedition on permanent display at the Museum of Flight in our Apollo exhibit. The oral history program at the Museum of Flight is made possible by Michael and Mary Kay Hallman. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>